Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined by portfolio manager Patrice Kirion, who manages Fidelity Global Concentrated Equity Fund and Fidelity International Concentrated Equity Fund. Today, Patrice puts global equities into focus. Patrice touches on inflation and says there is still work to be done to erase the perception of high inflation. This could mean to go higher or stay for a longer period. But higher rates remain dependent on how the economy fares and if we will see things deteriorate. And the risk-reward around cost of capital may cause defensive sectors to be more attractive with a slowing economy as well as bond proxies to be in a portfolio. As a contrarian, Patrice says there may not be an outright dislocation but a more compelling risk-reward in parts of the market. He adds it would make sense to get into a defensive position where he can pull when it's time to get into the offense. Patrice says the risk profile for equities is still higher than fixed income, but the compounding returns is more favorable even on defensive stocks. He adds dividend yields are still a little lower than long-term bond yields. However, these companies are still going to grow long-term, but not at growth stock levels such as 10%. This podcast was recorded on October 16th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Patrice, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Good to talk to you. So, you know, let's start out with, uh, it's October 16th right now. It's hard to believe that the year is is coming to a close and it won't be long before December 31st this year. So as you're looking into next year, 2024, what is your outlook uh, as of right now for uh, for the coming year? Yeah, I think that's the big question all of us need to, uh, to get a feel for. Um, the market is already very focused on 2024 and will be increasingly so uh, over the next uh, few months. Uh, and I think the big questions are the economy, which is, I think, clearly starting to to show signs of uh, weakness in the Western world as a result of all the monetary conditions tightening that we've seen by central banks over the past uh, 12 to 18 months uh, is starting to have an impact. Um, I think we started the year uh, thinking that 2023 would be the year of the slowdown and expectations when you looked at earnings estimates. Uh, was that 2024 would see a reacceleration after uh, potentially a weaker 2023. And I think that's a little bit of the thematic of the past couple of years where uh, what's been telegraphed is, seems to be taking a little bit longer to play out than what was first expected. There's been a degree of better resilience into the consumer, into, uh, especially in the Western world, again, driven by the U.S. consumer. Uh, as a result, it took uh, more rate hikes than we thought would be the case to to bring uh, a little bit of softness, to bring inflation under control. Uh, and I think we're really starting to enter that phase where 
the lag effect of those uh, tighter interest rate policies is starting to really have an impact. I think that is certainly the case here in Canada. Uh, even in the U.S., I think we will see like increasing signs of that uh, over uh, over the next few quarters from here. And I think my personal outlook going into next year is uh, is one of uh, a certain level of caution. I think that uh, at least when you look at consensus um, earnings estimates, uh, we've seen a little bit of erosion, but we're still seeing growth into next year. And I think that is uh, something to question, at least. Like, it, it, are companies going to be able to to grow, to sh- show the same level of pricing power than they have, to expand margins into a softer environment? Uh, I think that is going to be increasingly challenging. Uh, so I think we're potentially here in a period where we need to maybe reset expectations to some degree around what 2024 looks like. Um, valuations have come off to some extent, uh, or sar- certainly not at rock, rock bottom levels here. And I think to be in this type of slowing economy with expectations that probably need to tail off a little bit for, for global equities. And I would say that's especially the case uh, in countries that tend to be more rate sensitive, where we've seen a lot of rate hikes. Uh, so I would certainly put uh, places like Canada, like Northern Europe, um, I know Australia, New Zealand into that bucket. Um, yeah, I think we could be up for a tougher period here. Um, Right, And the question will become, as we sort of make our way through that, how do we protect the portfolios to some extent? Uh, because defensive, have, given the higher rate environment, have certainly not been acting defensively up until now. So the question is, when do we start to re-engage with the defensive sectors? Uh, and at the same time, like staying very uh, open to the idea that um, this is an environment which I suspect central banks will be able to re-accelerate when the inflationary pressures uh, have moved away, when we've created some slack into the economy, especially into the labor market. Uh, So I'm saying that because there will come a point to play offense again, because although now the market's focused on 2024, uh, if we talk again in in nine or 12 months, the market is going to be focused on 2025. It could be a different story for that sort of time frame. And I'm trying to really keep that to the top of mind. So we're, we're going to, well, lots to dig into here uh, uh, on opportunities and, and how you're kind of investing today. But, but you know, the, maybe the most immediate thing on people's minds right now is October 25th is the next Bank, next bank of Canada rate announcements. Um, you know, we've seen, as you're right, you're right, we've seen sort of things slowing. Uh, GDPs, it was flat in July. And um, do you think the Bank of Canada is going to pause now? Or there's still people saying that maybe maybe there could be another rate hike before the end of the year, whether in Canada or the U.S. or both, what do you think the next move? Yeah, um, to be honest, from a global perspective, sadly, the Bank of Canada doesn't matter all that much. So all the eyes are on the Fed, uh, to some extent, what happens in Europe and Japan. Um, and look, I think we are, I know the central banks always say that we're into a data-dependent phase. I think this is especially the case here. Um there's still uh, work to be done to really like erase that perception of higher inflation. Uh, but work to be done can mean a few different things. It can mean like the need to go even higher or the need to maybe stay where we are, but just for a longer period of time. 
What I try to do as a portfolio manager, and I think what we try to do generally across the board at Fidelity is not only focusing on like, what is the next move going to be? Uh, I, I think this is extremely hard to predict. Uh, I honestly think central banks might not really know what their next move is at this point. I think what I'm trying to focus on is much more like what has been discounted into the market. Um, and obviously, like those rate decisions matters mostly for the fixed income market, but I would say they matter increasingly so over the past few years on what does that mean to equities and which parts of the equity uh, spectrum will will work uh, or will be under uh, more more challenging condition given higher costs of capital. And what I would make as an observation on that is we started 2023 with maybe some talk of higher for longer. Um, but I don't think that was really reflected into where the market was. As opposed to now, I think this is much more so the case. You look at the back end of the yield curve, which has moved up significantly over the past uh, month or so. So I think expectations are starting to be quite elevated in terms of where are rates going to be uh, in the near term, but also in the long term future. And that has obviously put a lot of pressure on the rate-sensitive sectors. Uh, so when mentioning just a few moments ago, like the defensive parts of the markets have not acted defensively at all. You look across uh, consumer staples, utilities, real estate, telcos, even parts of healthcare. There's been a lot of pressure, a lot of underperformance into those defensive sectors, despite like those maybe growing like economic concerns. Uh, <clears throat> And to me, that can potentially raise an opportunity here uh, where the market has really changed its view in a pretty dramatic way on long-term like cost of capital um, because inflation remains sticky, because the Fed has telegraphed that they will adopt like truly for longer, like higher rates um, into their forecasts, into their dot plots. Um, and I still think that all of that remains dependent on how the economy fares. And if we start to see things deteriorating, and if we start to see some slack in the labor market as we enter uh, next year, uh, I think we might be at a point where the risk reward around like cost of capital uh, is screening a little bit more positively into that slowing economy and where it could make increasing uh, like the logic to have some defensive, some rate sensitive, call it like bond proxies into the portfolio uh, is is more compelling. And keep in mind, as I'm saying that, uh, I am one of those portfolio managers that have been advocating for higher for longer since many years. And I've been like very far away from all that part of the market. Uh, but I am also very contrarian and I can see that there is maybe not like outright dislocation, uh, but definitely a more compelling risk reward into those parts uh, of the markets. And, and to me, it starts to make more sense to have at least a, a bit of the portfolio there, uh, if for any, anything else, just to give us uh, a bit of defense that we can pull from um, when time comes to be uh, on the offense again. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think we are quite yet there. I mean, you are a contrarian investor, and it feels like there's nothing maybe more contrarian right now than saying, let's look at rate-sensitive sectors when you have bonds that are paying, you know, 5 6%. So why would an investor go into a rate-sensitive area when they could just put those dollars into a bond instead of a bond proxy? 
let's be honest. I think the very defensive part of the stock market, like those stocks are bond proxies. So they will move together uh, to a large extent. So call it, it is the same trade if you want. Uh, but yeah, I think that trade, which to me was very uh, far from compelling over past years, given very high valuation uh, companies that have relatively low long-term growth rates, uh, plus a risk of reset around, yeah, an environment that we're now in of, of higher rates made it not so compelling. We look at where we are now. Uh, yeah, those valuations have come off quite significantly, uh, which means the long-term compounding is a little bit better. It means the dividend yields are better. The free cash flow yields are better. Long-term growth profiles have not really changed. So I think we're just looking at better, like call it like forever rates of return going forward. It's still limited. This is not the highest like long-term like compounded rates of return that we'll find in the market, but it can play a role for, for a period of time where we are a little bit more careful. So now why that defensive rate sensitive part of the stock market as opposed to going outright on bonds? Uh, I would say like, although the risk profile is slightly higher on equities as opposed to the fixed income market, I still think that compounding algorithm over the very long time is a little bit more favorable on, on equities, even very defensive equities. If we think of consumer staples as like maybe a, a bit of a proxy for that, uh, yes, we're at a point where the dividend yields are now slightly below uh, the, the long-term bond yields. Uh, but at the same time, this is not your only source of return investing in equities. Those companies will be companies that will grow over the long term. Again, they're not growth stocks, so they won't grow 10% a year. But if those very large like consumer stocks, like consumer staples companies can grow call it more or less in line with GDP over time with a more or less like flat to slightly increasing margin profile over time, you'll get your dividend yield, but you'll get, um, call it like four, five, six percent, maybe seven or eight in, in the faster growing ones, um, earnings growth uh, over time. And I don't think that's going to be dramatically different over the next uh, few years. And also keep in mind, those companies don't distribute all of their earnings in dividends. So there is a dividend element, but there's also a share buyback element or an element of cash that's generating to go towards acquisition to supplement that organic growth profile. So you put all of that together, and although the dividend yields are lower than bonds, uh, than bond yields, uh, the total shareholder return, like including buybacks, including organic growth over time, is still superior, as they should be. There should be an equity risk premium into the market, even in the more defensive parts of the market. Um, and in my opinion, given the valuations have come off quite significantly, uh, given that it might make sense to play a little bit more defensively, at least over the next few quarters, um, it is an area of the portfolio where I have been adding uh, from very low positioning, like over the past uh, many years, but which to me starts to look a little bit more interesting. But I want to say all of that, keeping in mind that my investment style, the products I manage, are probably never going to be the most defensive products. We have other uh, great portfolio managers internally, which have that as a much greater focus of their investment style. Uh, in my case, I'm always chasing for what parts of the market are dislocated, where do we see sentiment that is overly negative, uh, that 
may lead to a much more favorable upside when the, the sentiment and the earnings profile, the fundamentals for a subgroup of companies renormalize. Um, and this is really what gets me interested much more so than uh, really looking at uh, spending a lot of my time and investing a lot of the portfolio in very defensive stocks. I think it has a role to play right now, but this is not the core of what I, I tend to do. There, there is a question that actually just came in, which is now, now seems to be the right time to ask, ask this. The global concentrated equity fund that you run is a blended style. So are you leaning to value a bit more now or in, into the future? Yeah, so I always define my style as trying to look for good quality companies that are out of favor, so that are very uh, interesting from a value perspective. So I'm looking to get that sort of intersection between quality and value. In my opinion, uh, the markets are more volatile, like the value of stocks move around a lot more than that fair value or what's the price we should pay if we were buying a business in perpetuity or for the next like 20 or 50 years. The value of that business doesn't change all that much compared to how much the market fluctuates around that. And the reason is that the market tends to extrapolate the current environment. The markets tend to get very uh, call it emotional or very sensitive to what is happening now, to what's the outlook for the next year or two. While in reality, what we should think about of what's the value of a business into an average year or into a normalized environment. And what I try to do as a portfolio manager is go into those parts of the market where things are challenging at the moment or where the outlook is challenging for call it the next year or so. And where as a result, the market has really moved away from that subsector or some countries, or in some case, it can be very company specific. And I try to do a lot of work with our research teams, uh, our analysts scattered all around the globe, trying to get a better view than most on what's that long-term value of a business. What's that fair value? How big is the discount today? Trying to understand just how well understood uh, is the situation that leads to that negative sentiment towards a, a group of stocks. And when we find a scenario where, uh, or a situation where, you are offered like a big margin of safety where the stocks are treated, trading meaningfully below what is the most likely or fair value over time. Um, when we've done the work that this is something that can renormalize as opposed to something being structural in nature where things never get better from here. Uh, when we've done the work that the company is in a good position to navigate like that more challenging period, usually by looking at the higher quality businesses within that affected area. This is where I get excited. This is where I tend to build the portfolios. So it will screen value. And really what I find interesting is if I think of that quality overlay, usually the more interesting value will be either into quality cyclical stocks, which we've seen a lot of over the past few years. I think like the cyclical part of the market was really out of favor ever since like 2018, which is when we had the US-China trade war. And then we had COVID, and then we had a war in Europe and an inflation period. So yeah, in general, quality defensives, uh, sorry, quality cyclicals have been out of favor. Uh, this is where the portfolio has been mostly invested uh, over the past five years. Well, a lot of these stocks came back like in a pretty impressive manner over the past like 
call it year, 18 months or so. To me, this is a bit less interesting. So what are the other buckets that I tend to look at? I talked about quality defensives, uh, which is getting more interesting in my opinion right now because generally they are much more rate sensitive. Um, and there's a bucket of quality growth stocks, which is also of interest. Uh, we had an opportunity to dip our toes a little bit more into that sector like early, early this year or late last year. But in general, that's been a very expensive uh, subgroup of stocks, in my opinion, uh, over the past five, seven, eight years. Uh, and it sort of became like that, like once again, over the past, like over the summer, really. Uh, so less of interest. So I would say between those three buckets, I am sort of transitioning away from quality cyclicals a little bit more into quality defensives uh, at the moment. So where do we switch from, you know, late cycle um, to kind of early cycle? What what does that look like to you? And then does that, uh, you know, do, do the stocks that you're looking at change if we're moving into an early cycle stage? Yes, absolutely. And this is a great question. I, I mentioned about quality cyclicals that were generally out of favor, but in reality, as you can imagine, it is more complex than that. There are so many different sub cycles going on. Companies that are much more affected, like very early in the cycle versus later in the cycle. Um, and cyclical stocks tend to get dislocated once in a while. This is where sentiment can really swing around. So this is an area of the market which is always interesting to a contrarian because there's always something that tends to be quite out of favor. Over the past years, I would have made the case, and this is where a portfolio has been positioned, where the later cycle stocks, so companies that tend to have like long backlogs where what they work on like requires long lead times, long decision process, um, think of aerospace as a great example of that, where if you're Boeing or Airbus, like you have an order backlog that stretches like five to 10 years, depending on the type of aircraft. So very long time, long-term decisions made by the airlines, very long backlog, which means that those stocks don't move all that much given what's happening to the economy today or tomorrow. Uh, same thing on like, think of engineering construction companies that build like infrastructure projects. It, it just takes such a long time to plan for that, that these stocks basically accumulate orders when times are good and when times are not as good, they kind of work through those orders. So the cycle is very different than something that is much shorter term, like at the extreme think of most consumer related decision, like that tends to move very quickly when the economy uh, gets going or slows down. Um, on the more industrial or tech side, like same thing, there are some pockets of spending, uh, think of like transportation, for instance, where it, it moves like very much in sync with the economy, much earlier cycle. Uh, think of like factory automation uh, types of widgets and assembly chains and robots and all that. Like usually the capacity gets added when demand is there. So it happens relatively quickly uh, into an economic cycle. So what I'm doing on that cyclical part, that more value part of the portfolio at the moment, is shifting the exposure away from late cycle stocks, which have been performing really, really well over the past years, uh, yeah, year or two as the market came to realize uh, sort of the earnings power of these businesses, which was very discounted during like the COVID period. 
and on the flip side, if you look at the earlier cycle stocks, as you can imagine, with those mounting fears of a global recession, we're starting to see some pretty obvious signs of that. Uh, like the orders are coming off. Those stocks have been under pretty significant pressure over the past year or so. To me, this is where they're starting to be a little bit more of a dislocation or a discount reflected in the prices in the market versus what those companies should be worth in a normalized environment over the long term. And it opens that window for me to transition from long cycle into short cycle, although the market like on a very short term basis is doing the opposite because the market is feeling those long cycle stocks are more uh, shielded from a recession because they have those big backlogs. The short cycle stocks will be more impacted, which is absolutely right. But the market overreacts, like overdoes it. The market tends to be very efficient on a directional basis, but overreacts. The movements are greater than they should be dictated by, uh, by the fair values. And as a contrarian investor, I try to take advantage of these opportunities. And the opportunity is opening up, in my opinion, on those short cycle stocks on the more cyclical part of the market and into some uh, some bits of defensive stocks as well right now. Um, I want to ask a question about earnings. Um, 2023, uh, everyone thought earnings were kind of optimistic and then they did get revised downward. But um, but but companies still beat those expectations because they were revised downward. Um, but what about 2024? Are they still are people still optimistic? I mean, you're not you, you said that it's going to be a tougher year. But what about kind of the consensus out there? Are, are people seeing that? Yeah. So consensus is obviously like not overly optimistic. Like we, we all hear the same news. We all see that the economy is slowing down. Uh, but consensus is still calling for earnings growth, uh, into next year. And to me, that's a little bit more tricky to see than this year. I think the story of this year was one where the consumer was sort of starting to be incrementally impacted, especially in the Western world. Uh, we can talk about Asia, uh, which has, I think, a different set of dynamics uh, at the moment. Uh, but in the Western world, the consumer was pressured, but the consumer was very healthy, like uh, add excess savings uh, built during the pandemic, add sort of a, a spirit to spend, which was there uh, over the past few years, especially on like services and experiences. Uh, so the consumer was willing to lever up uh, to, to, to keep spending. Um, so companies, in a way, benefited from that. And we had the inflationary environment. And companies, in the vast majority of cases, have been able to push through pretty significant price increases. So they have had pricing power. And obviously, if you have pricing power, uh, it means more revenues. And if you're able to have enough pricing power to defend your margins, it means you capture the same margin percentage on a higher revenue base. And that has been the case much more so than what was feared at the beginning of the year. And that led to those higher like earnings expectations across like a wide variety of different subsectors through this year. Where I am a little bit ner more nervous into next year is there are increasing signs of the consumer breaking down to some extent, like I don't want to make it sound too dramatic, but the, the consumer's ability to spend and to lever up is, is definitely more limited from here, which means that, and there's already been significant price taken by, by corporate America or across the globe. And there's starting to be some pushback. There's starting to be some trade down. There's starting to be changes in terms of shifting, like spending decisions, like in time. 
To me, it starts to rhyme as the pricing power of a lot of companies is going to be different next year uh, than this year. And by different, I mean worse, like less ability to take price without impacting demand. Uh, and I'm not sure this is captured in consensus, generally speaking. Um, so this is where I'm maybe a little bit more nervous uh, for next year than I was uh, for this year. This year, I was still relatively optimistic, but that that is starting to change uh, over the past, over past, uh, yeah, call it a few months or so. Um, so you, you have uh, two funds. One has the global in the name. One has international. Uh, and both of those are, uh, you know outside of Canada. So um, how would you define the two? Well, what's the difference between the two? Yeah, well, on the similarities, uh, I manage them with the exact same sort of contrarian trying to find good quality businesses that are out of favor. So as a result, are, are dislocated from fair value or attractive value. So this is a common like uh, approach to it. They are both concentrated. They are both very long-term focused. Um, the difference lies in the global portfolios allows me to go everywhere across the globe, including here in North America, as opposed to the international portfolios will strip out the North American component. So it strips out Canada, which is a small piece, big piece. It strips out the U.S., which is almost two thirds of the global market cap. Uh, so the international portfolios are mostly invested uh, across uh, Europe and Asia, emerging markets at large. Uh, in the global funds, uh, they are also very flexible. So I am overweight the rest of the world versus North America, even in the global portfolios. Uh, but obviously, there is still like a 30% or so, which is invested in North America. So in a way, if you believe in the investment approach, you're both like good alternative to look at. Uh, and then it's a question of how much diversification away from North America are you trying to accomplish on behalf of your clients? If you feel you already have way too much exposure to Canada and the U.S., Canada could be a challenging year for a consumer going into next year. Um, the U.S. is maybe, uh, obviously, has been like a stellar story over the past 10 years. I think an economy that has hugely benefited from a lower cost of capital, given the composition of the market, which tends to be more uh, growthy in nature, uh, is an, a market that is less cyclical in nature than the rest of the world. Um, I think the next decade could look different uh, versus uh, the past one in terms of U.S. outperformance. Uh, or I think the more cyclical parts of the economy that are less tied to a, a low cost of capital, more tied to an economy that eventually recovers, uh, could be a better position. And I think as a result, the rest of the world is potentially in a, best, in a better position than, than North America uh, when we think of the decade ahead or the decade is a long time, but call it like the next Three to five years ahead. That's why I have that flexibility to move in the global fund, but obviously not as international uh, than, than the international. So we have just you know, about 30 seconds left. So I'm just going to ask this last question, uh, just about playing offense. So the people listening on, the investors, advisors, how do you play offense in an environment like this? Yeah, well, I would say it's not in the environment like this. It's trying to start planning on what are we going to look for to start going into those more, again, more cyclical, more uh, higher beta parts of the market. Uh, when the market starts to shift from worrying about what happens over the next few quarters 
to thinking what happens into a recovery potentially into 2025. And the market won't wait until 2025 to do that. Um, for me, it's always the same approach, is to look at what has been discounted in the stock. So from a very fundamental perspective, doing a lot of work with our analysts, what do I need to believe in in terms of earnings power of that business so that on a normalized multiple, we can justify the prices where the stocks are today? And when you need to start believing in very little or start believing into something that is much more reflective of a recessionary environment than a normal or a good year environment, this to me is when it gets really interesting. And we are getting closer to that on some parts of the market. But I would say in general, across the broader market, uh, this is not where we are today. But uh, this is where my focus already is today and increasingly will be as we move into the next uh, into the next year of, of finding those pockets of stocks where sentiments, where expectations are very low. And if we're looking to willing to look past, uh, that more trans, like that more difficult period that we're transitioning into here, uh, where will the good opportunities be? Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're here trying to do that for you as much as possible. And, and I'm certainly trying to do that, uh, through all the portfolios I manage. Great, Patrice, always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.